All right, we'll go ahead and get started since that was the bell, and since I'm a high school teacher, that means we start. So <laughs> I'm going to start because the bell rang, and you know I take attendance and everything else. And, you know, here. It's just my it's part of my yeah here we're here right. I do that lunch count all that right. So I'm used to doing that, and so I like to start on that, and that way we can get through some things too. Pastor told me he'd be very happy if I get through the rest of his handout that he started last week and only got through like one point of. And so I'm going to be kind of the guy that keeps going on that sort of thing. And I'm going to give you a couple of other things also on Paul that I think will be helpful for you. I'm, as you well are well aware, how I got into theology and how I got into church work was through apologetics, which is the defense of the faith, a well-reasoned, some might even use the word legal defense of the faith. And we get the word from a Greek word called apologia, um, or apologian. It's in 1 Peter 3.15. Peter actually says, um, but sanctify Christ as God in your hearts. Then it says, and always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. That word answer is apologetic. So when I was in high, uh, high school, when I was in college, I went to a public school. My dad was a Christian. He was really, really good about emphasizing know why you believe what you believe. Don't just do it because I say so. Know why you believe what you believe. That was kind of a tagline he would tell us all the time in high school. Every time I went to school, and he was one of my teachers, he would say, remember your creator while you're young, which is kind of a quote of the end of Ecclesiastes. You know, before everything goes on, you remember your creator while you're young. He would say that to me every time that I left for school. And so I had this kind of environment where I was going to, you know, creation evolution conferences and watching debates on the resurrection. And so I got into theology via apologetics about defending the faith. So I had a different approach than most when they come into this. And Paul, the reason I say that is Paul is the best source for us from an apologetic standpoint in not only defending the New Testament, but also making a case for the resurrection of Jesus and in a variety of other areas. And I'm going to explain a little of that for you as we get into this text. I want to kind of just talk about some things just historically that's a little bit off the track of what pastor's doing, and then I will get through some of this also. But I want to make sure that I, I communicate these things because it might be valuable for you knowing who Paul is. So first thing, Paul is, like as I mentioned before, the best source even for skeptics on early Christianity. So if you've ever uh, read books by somebody like, say, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who's a very big skeptical uh, scholar. He wrote books back in the 2000s called Misquoting Jesus. Have you ever heard that verse before? Um, it's a kind of this whole screed about how we can't trust the New Testament. But then when he gets in a debate with somebody who's a, you know, a believing scholar, he just agrees with him the whole time. So he's kind of a tricky guy to nail down. But Dr. Bart Ehrman is one. Um, there's several others that go around saying, well, we don't know if Jesus wrote this. Back in the 90s, there was the Jesus Seminar, which they used colored beads to determine what was a real saying of Jesus and what wasn't. And so there's this big skepticism about the text. Well, the good news is most skeptics will grant some certain things about Paul. So Paul's epistles, okay, and then I'm going to get to some other things here. But Paul's epistles skeptics will grant you seven of these as by Paul. Even skeptics, again, not believers, will say these are genuine Pauline epistles. They'll grant you Galatians. Okay, they'll grant you Romans. They'll give you 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They'll grant you Philippians. They'll grant you Philemon, and they'll grant you Romans. Oh, I already said Romans, sorry. Yeah, I already had Romans. Three, four, five, six. Uh, I think Hebrews books. Oh, 1 Thessalonians. And I'll just abbreviate that. Okay, so these seven, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, these seven letters, skeptics will say, are by Paul. 
Now, here's what's significant for me. If I'm an apologist, or if I'm defending the faith, or if I'm looking for evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, we have the gospel pretty strongly with these seven letters, right? Do we have the divinity of Jesus and the resurrection and the crucifixion? Do we have practices in the church like communion and baptism? Do we have uh, things on how we should organize our lives and on spiritual gifts and the inspiration of the Bible? And we go on and on and on. Law and gospel. I would say we have all those things with those seven letters. So again, skeptics grant those seven, which is crazy to actually, if you really think about this, because, and I'm not going to go into all the details here, but in Philippians and uh, 1 Corinthians and other passages, we have early Christian creedal passages where if you read it in the Greek, it sounds, it's like Paul's writing, and I, Paul, say this to you, and he's just talking, and then all of a sudden it goes, dun da dun da dun da da dun da dun da da dun da dun da dun da da in Greek. Does that make sense? So he's quoting a hymn or a creed of some kind in 1 Corinthians and in Philippians. Now, if you've been paying attention to Pastor, what, which of these books is the earliest? You can just say it out loud. Which one's the earliest? Galatians. Galatians, right? And this is usually somewhere dated about 48 to 49 AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. 1 Corinthians, so let's do it this way, okay, is usually dated to about 52 to 53 AD. And, he'll, and Pastor will talk more about these and the, and the reasons for the writing. But the reason I bring this stuff up, 1 Corinthians 15 has a passage where we get the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to the 12, he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. By the way, if that includes only the men, that means the women and children aren't counted. It could be like 2,000 at one time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. And then he says about himself, Paul says, and as, as if one abnormally born, he appeared to me also. So he lists himself, Paul does, as part of those resurrection, those bodily resurrection appearances. Okay, so when he sees Jesus on the, on the Damascus Road, he makes no distinction between his appearance as, versus, I mean, his vision, I guess, of Christ and the appearances to the disciples and the other believers. So he includes himself in this. Now, what's fascinating about this is when he it says this, he basically quotes and says, hey, I got this information that I'm giving to you now, and so here's the list. And we get this creed, and Christ was buried according to the scriptures, and he, and he uh, raised on the third day according to the scriptures, right? That passage. That's an early Christian creed. Now look at the date on this. Okay? 52 to 53 AD. Now Jesus is conventionally dated to about 30 or 33, depending on how you count the Passovers, either 30 or 33 AD in terms of his death and resurrection. And here's Paul writing in creedal form in the early 50s AD. Okay, that's less than 20 years, or right about 20 years after the events. This is why this is significant. In order for it to be in creedal form at this time, it had to have been made into a creed before. You with me so far, right? He can't just quote, well, there's this creed I got, and I just made it up on the spot. No, he says it was passed on, it was given to him, and then he has this creed in creedal form that he gives to the Corinthians. So scholars that look at this say, where did he get this? Where did this creed come from? Where did, where did Paul get this information? And so Richard Bauckham, who's a scholar in England, Gary Habermas, who's um, one of my favorite apologists, and many others say that he got this information when he met with the disciples in Jerusalem, either in Galatians 2, which we're going to get into here in just a second, or during the Acts 15 council. Okay, do you know when we actually date those? Okay. I'll say I'll just say Council Jerusalem. Okay. Most people date this to about 38 or 39 AD. Now, 
if he got that creed then, that means it was already in creedal form in 38, 39 AD for him to get, right? Following the logic here? Which means we have a creed about Jesus rising from the dead right on top of the events. In other words, the early church, it's not like the early church invented the divinity of Jesus. It's not like the early church created the resurrection of the dead. This was right on top of the events. We have creedal eyewitness testimony, eyewitness creedal material that goes right on top of the events. That's why Paul is such a big deal for us. In Philippians 2, we have the famous uh, passage where it says, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, that whole passage, but humbled himself even to the death on the cross. And then it says, He's raised again, and that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. It's just this beautiful poetic, even in English, even in translation, it's one of the most beautiful poetic passages about Jesus in Scripture. Philippians 2, that early hymn, that's a hymn. He quotes a hymn. It's almost, we are 99.5% positive that this is some sort of early Christian hymn. So if he's quoting this hymn that's already existent in existence, and he expects his audience to know it, that probably means the hymn is pretty early too, right? So that means Paul, when writing these epistles, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, all these other different epistles, he is writing and sharing with us information that is right on top of the events. Now, I want to give you an example. I'll use, uh, I've done this before with you, but I want to remind you about how significant this is. Imagine me over here. I'm going to go left to right for your sake, and I'm kind of going to be the timeline here. So imagine this is ground zero, 30, 33 AD, right? And imagine, for example, right here, we've got the Jerusalem Council. We have Paul writing Galatians, Corinthians, later, later epistles, so on. And then all the way down here, at the end of the table, would be the Gospel of John at about, say, about 90 AD. That's a conventional date. It could be earlier, but that's a conventional date, okay? So you get the idea. Now, how much, if you know ancient history, do you want to know uh, the earliest source for Alexander the Great? Let's say Alexander the Great dies, right? Right here, in the 300s BC. Okay, earliest source. Earliest source. I, can't, I, I have to go up the wall. Okay. 300 years plus from Alexander the Great. Does anybody doubt that Alexander the Great existed? Does anybody doubt that he, you know, you get the point I'm making? Yeah. And so we can go with many uh, ancient sources. The best sources of many of these ancient figures date hundreds of years. And these are the best sources after these figures. And here we have Paul writing in 1 Corinthians and giving us creeds that are right on top of the events. So I hope that gives you confidence. It should encourage you. Yes, go for it. Um, maybe, maybe I need this to set it in tone for me. Why or what? was the Council of Jerusalem. Well, that's in Acts 15. Death. We're going to get there. If we oh, don't get okay. to it today, we'll get there okay. um, uh, when pastor's here. But it's coming up. Council of Jerusalem's coming up. Okay. So again, if we are right on top of the events themselves, and you want good source material, you want eyewitness testimony, you want source documents from the time itself, Paul is a great source. So even skeptical scholars will admit that this stuff is there. It's by Paul, and it's very ancient. There is nothing like this in the ancient world. Your faith is not based on some sort of long ago and far away there was a man named Jesus. Okay, Your faith is based on something that happened in real, real history. I can't emphasize that enough. For some reason, we tend to view our faith as kind of like this distant, intangible, kind of cool thing that we can't grasp a hold of. No, this has happened in, on earth, on real dirt, <laughs> Okay, in a real geographic location, with real people, and we have legitimate historical documented evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, okay? And our whole faith bases on this, and Paul is our best source for some of this. So you should know this, that there's a confidence you can have 
not only in terms of the ancientness of it, but also in the way that it's been preserved as well, as we keep discovering more and more New Testament manuscripts. I don't know if you know this, but in terms of fragments or full manuscripts, we have 6,000 now New Testament Greek manuscripts. 6,000. Some are complete, almost New Testaments, and they're called codexes if they're in a Bible, right? A codex sinaiticus or something like that. Sometimes they're just a little fragment of papyri, like a little, little, little piece of paper, front and back, and you can kind of figure out what scripture it is. The papyri in particular from Egypt date to about one or two hundreds uh, A.D., even before. So they could be copies of the original or a second generation copy. And so we have 6,000 manuscripts of the Great New Testament. You want to know the next best one in the ancient world in Greek? Homer with about 400. That's the best one after the New Testament. So when we read Paul and we read the stuff in Acts and we read things like Galatians or 1st and 2nd Corinthians or those sort of things, you can know that you're reading the text that Paul wrote. The only differences we have, 90-something percent of differences between manuscripts or things like they spell Paul's name wrong or the word order is different. We still don't know how to spell John in Greek, Yonin. It's got two N's or one N. We don't know because it's almost equal in the manuscripts. Okay, does that change the meaning of the text? Well, obviously not. Okay, there's in Greek, Greek is highly inflected, so you can spell words differently or you can like change the order and it still means the same as long as the ending's the same. So you could say Jesus loves Paul, Paul loves Jesus, loves Jesus Paul, the Paul do love Jesus the, and all these other different things, and it all mean the same thing based on word endings. You see what I'm saying? Each one of those counts as a difference to the manuscripts, but it doesn't change the meaning. You can't even translate it. It means the same thing. You get what I mean? And so when you go through all these differences in the manuscripts and you compare and contrast, you can know that what you hold in your hands when you have this Bible, that you can trust what you have. Okay? You can trust what's in the New Testament. It is what was originally written. If it's not in the text itself, it's in the footnotes when it says some manuscripts have this. Right? So if it's not there, it's in the footnotes. You can trust your text. You don't have to go around saying, well, it's, Paul writes all this stuff, but I don't know if he actually did because maybe the church kind of corrupted the text. I'm telling you, and if you want more details on this, I can give it to you. You can trust your text. So when Paul says what he says, that is what he wrote, especially in these seven that nobody does. By the way, I think he wrote more like 11 or 12, but I'm just giving you the minimal facts, the ones that even skeptics give you at this point, okay? So I want to introduce you why I think Paul is significant for me personally. Now, as Lutherans, he's huge also. We are very Pauline, especially the distinction between law and gospel, the way he talks about the presence of Christ in communion in Corinthians and other passages. And so he is significant for us theologically and for how he um, communicates to us as Gentiles. So absolutely, all the <laughs> theological stuff that Pastor Dinger has been giving us the last few weeks, absolutely, I'm on board with those things too. But I want to show you my angle and why I get excited about Paul as a history teacher and as a theologian and as just kind of an uber geek in general. Why I get into it, you're kind of seeing why it's exciting because there is really nothing like this in the ancient world. So then you got to ask yourself, if these are eyewitness testimonies, they're saying Jesus rose from the dead, what do you do with that? Right? Are they lying? Are they hallucinating? I mean, what's going on? Was Paul on shrooms? You know, I mean, I'm serious. You'd be amazed. There are people, there are skeptics that are confronted with this evidence, and they come up with the most bizarre theories to try to explain Paul's conversion. They say he had some sort of conversion complex or conversion disorder. What they mean by that is they think Paul was like, you know, because it was searing his conscience to persecute Christians and to go after the way that he so sympathized with them or he had this guilty conscience, so then he identified with them. It was like a psychological disorder. 
Like, really? Does he sound psychologically disturbed to you, Paul? One of the most brilliant minds in the Just asking you. You know, so I mean, it's just funny because you have to deal with the evidence. And really what ends up happening is, is when you're confronted with the evidence, it's probably more about that you don't want Jesus to rise from the dead because of what it means, rather than it is the evidence itself. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, that means he makes a claim on you, right? And if he makes a claim on you that he rose from the dead, that he's the son of God, and what he says is true, it validates all the stuff he said and his mission, then you've got a problem. Because if you're not a Christian, and you're confronted with his evidence, you've got to try to get out of it. Because if it's true, you might have to change your life a little bit. Don't like that, right? So there's a lot of reasons, and I can give you more reasons, too. I just want to show you how strong that evidence is. Any comments or questions just on my intro there? I just want to talk about Paul and his significance for me personally and how I teach him in the high school. So you got a little bit of a high school thing. We talk about stuff like this all the time. My kids are probably sick of it, but, you know, <laughs> they get this. Uh, seniors in particular, we have our, our first graduating class this year, and they've had me for four years of theology. They know more about apologetics probably than they ever thought to. They know how to answer the most bizarre objections <laughs> that they probably didn't even know existed until they had me as their teacher. We did uh, Old Testament apologetics. Uh, we're finishing that unit right now, so we talk about the law and the weird things that are there and everything. And so they, if you ask them, if you catch one of our seniors, so I see the Rodriguez over here, catch Aurora or catch one of them, or Joel Basil, you see him say, hey, what's, what's going on with these laws in the Old Testament? He should be able to answer. Okay? Because they're going to be tested this week, so they better be ready. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, yeah, no, you're not going to be tested. I'm going to make you come, Ralph, and take it with them. Okay. Got to have somebody to point at. All right, so now I'm on this outline from Pastor. This is... Uh, 8043, Syrian Antioch, 11, 25 to 26. He did this one, kind of. <laughs> okay. He says, Barnabas, uh, he says, set aside Saul and Barnabas, right? And they go and teach for a year, right? You remember that passage? So I'm going to read that again just to kind of uh, recap where we're at. It has a little map on here if you like that. I'm, I apologize. I didn't pull it up on the screen. But this is the map that Pastor was using if you need it. You don't have to have it, but if you need it. So I'll say this again. So this is Acts 11, 25 to 26. So I'll just go ahead and read this again. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look after Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, and so that word means little Christ. You've heard that before, right? Little Christ. Before it was just the way. Christian means little Christ, um, meaning that... Man, if, if that's your reputation, if you are called Christians, they must have had quite the ministry going on if they were calling them all little Jesuses, right? Just something to throw out, throw out there. But anyways, they're first called Christians here, okay? And the way pastors know it is they're a congregation with zeal, right? I mean, they must have been zealous if they're going to be called Christians. And remember, that's one of Paul's, Saul, Paul's characteristics, is zealousness. He is zealous for the Old Testament. He is zealous for the law. He is zealous to see God's kingdom. And then he gets a detour, right? Christ shows up and he gets detoured off and he says, all right, here's the actual kingdom that you were not necessarily looking for in the right way. So it's kind of fascinating to think that this is a congregation that we think, at least the theory would be, is that Paul would have resonated greatly with the, 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 the church in Antioch because it would have been a similar attitude that he had for the people of God. Okay, And so you can see that in his notes, right? They study, they worship, they pray, they're serving, they're going and telling. Of course, those are themes that pastor has done in the past with whether it's theming a year for the church or studies or whatever, like love God, love others, serve the world, things like that. He, he's emphasizing those sort of like basic things that this congregation is involved with. 
Okay, so then, so that's 43 AD, you see the timeline. The next part, and this is kind of where we left off, is Acts 11, 27 to 30, okay? This is a fascinating passage. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. I love Luke, and as the history, by the way, Luke's writing this, right, in Acts. He's Mr. History Buff, like me. So he's like, oh yeah, this is the emperor at this time. You know, he's like giving you little tag lights all the time. It's awesome. Okay, so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so we have a prophecy, and so they take a collection and gift to the Jerusalem church. So if you're in Tarsus, and again, if you have the map, if you don't have the map, that's okay. But if you're up in Antioch or where Paul's from in Tarsus and places like that, even if there's a drought, you can withstand that a little bit better than Jerusalem. Okay, because in Jerusalem, you're, land, you're, you're a little bit more inland, you're high up, you're in kind of a desert climate, right? And if there's a drought, it's going to impact you quicker than it would, say, for example, if you're close to the coast up in the upper Mediterranean. Now, it's going to impact you there, too, but you have more access to stuff. So it makes sense for the Jerusalem church, based on this prophecy that takes place, to take this up. So Barnabas and Saul are the messengers and the gift bearers. And then we add the first signs of trouble. Okay, so during this time, 43-44 AD, they're going to go to Jerusalem and... There's a problem, and they have to hand this stuff out. I have to give gifts, okay, these gifts. We're going to distribute this stuff to the different people. So what happens? In Acts 12, 25, we have an interesting thing. And Barnabas and Saul returned from their service, and when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other's name was Mark. And we talked about John Mark the other day, right? Okay, then we're going to have a dispute. But look at, so you see the question mark here. The reason there's a question mark under the Galatians passage is we're not sure how many times when Paul goes to Jerusalem, which conflict takes place when, because there's different ways to interpret it. It's not like he says, in the year 45 AD, I did this, right? Or unlike Luke, when Paul writes in Galatians, he doesn't say, oh yeah, Claudius was emperor, and this guy was the governor, and this guy was, right, like Luke does, which I like. Paul doesn't do that. He just writes. And so it's kind of hard exactly to say that. Okay, so here we go. Um, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. By the way, he also notes that um, Herod dies there. The grandson of Herod the Great dies in 44. So Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is where we're at now. Perhaps the earliest book of the Bible. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, right? When I was a kid, my mom told me to remember General Electric Power Company. <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. <laughs> yeah, here we go. go. I like that one. I like that one. All right. <laughs> Food always works. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Okay, so this is what it says here. So he's telling his testimony to the people of Galatia. He's establishing his authority as an apostle. Listen to what he says. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Titus isn't mentioned in Acts. Paul gives us that information, okay? I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. That's crazy. Do you, think what he's, do you hear what he's saying there? I've been doing this ministry for 14 years, but I still want to check it out to make sure I haven't been just wasting my time. 
<laughs> it's, a, it's just a strange comment, okay? But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God so shows no partiality. I, well, everybody thinks they're famous, but I don't really care. Okay? <laughs> those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, and by the way, those people he's talking about are probably Peter, James, and John, people like that, those kind of that, those, those inner circle folks. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, family member of Jesus, is kind of the bishop, if you want to use that term, the overseer of the Church of Jerusalem, Episcopos, that's what that means. You could say pastor, shepherd, that's the same word, point made. It's just different, <coughs> emphasizing different aspects of offices there, okay? Um, so here it says, on the contrary, so that's, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. And so remember, historically, why this is a big deal, too? Galatians 48, 49 AD, right? He writes this epistle, okay? So they added nothing to me. That's Peter, James, and John. And if he gets those creeds we're talking about or these hymns around this time from this era, you can see because if Paul's converted around 30, 33 AD, right? Well, no, 33 is the death. So 35, 36 AD, if you had 14 years, right? So you're thinking 48, 49, somewhere in there, okay, when he's writing this. Pretty amazing, okay? Just throwing that out there, okay? Uh, now, verse 7, on the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted um, with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Same Holy Spirit, right? Get the idea? Mm -hmm. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, right? And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is why we think it's the collection, right? Because the poor are struggling right now. Remember them, take care of them. And Paul's like, yep, that's what we're doing. Yep, we're on board. But they say, hey, you're a brother. Is this because of the famine? Yes, that's the implication, right? So we have this famine coming in. And again, that's, it's a question mark, just to be careful. It's a question mark because we're not 100% sure. We think it's just implied in the text, but it's not exactly explicitly said. So Paul doesn't go and say, the prophet Agabus prophesied this, and this is when I came. Right? He doesn't say that. So it's an implication from the text. It's not 100%. So in other words, if somebody comes along and says, well, we think Galatians 2 was written when Paul went to the Jerusalem Council, you know, three years later or whatever. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> doesn't change the doctrine or whatever. And it still means he went to Jerusalem, and it still means he met Peter, James, and John. And it still means that this stuff's still true, too. So it's really a minor detail if you really think about it. But it's an interesting way of looking at that. Okay, it's your first hints in the way Pastor writes this of trouble with the Judaizers, the party of the circumcision, as they are called. And that's going to be a big tension. It's funny because the initial church, of course, is Christian, but really within a, a generation or two, it's majority Gentile. And this is going to set up this council. For if you don't know this council, we're, uh, we probably won't get to it today, but it has to do with this idea. If you're going to join this Jewish sect, the people of the way, do you need to be circumcised? Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting question. If you come from these pagan countries like, you know, Greece and Rome and, you know, Western Turkey and Egypt and all these other places, how, how Jewish do you have to be? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, you can see why they would, they, would, they would wonder about that. I mean, that's 
That's a problem. How Jewish should you be? Do you have to, you know, do the prayers? Do you have to go to the synagogue on Saturdays? Do you have to honor the Sabbath? I mean, what do you have to do? And so the Jerusalem Council is going to answer this. And this passage in Galatians here gives us some hints that something's going on here. We have some tension already. Did you notice how he, what he says about him too? Look what he says. False brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. What he means by that is slavery to the law, right? In other words, now that we have this freedom in Jesus, we want to bring you back into this kind of slavery that make you do all these things, these ritual things again that you don't have to do anymore because Christ not abolished but fulfilled those things. Okay, so if Christ fulfilled those things, we want to bring you into that slavery again. That's why he calls it that. It's pretty strong. He calls them false brothers and says they're trying to put chains on us. Okay, so you can see Paul's opinion right away. Peter's kind of funny, because later on Paul's going to say, I told Peter off to his face because he was being a hypocrite about this, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> this guy, <they're, laughs> actually the very next passage. If you don't know it, just for fun, look at this. Uh, page, uh, starting in verse 11. Pastor will talk about this too, but watch this. But when Cephas, or Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain, Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, <laughs> fearing the circumcision party. <laughs> so, yeah, go for it. I have a question. So, um, Paul became the head of the Catholic Church, and Peter became the head of the Eastern Church. Is that right? Okay, so to make it brief, Paul and Peter both probably die in Rome um, for different reasons, and, and but roughly around the same time. Okay, and so what we call the Roman Catholic Church is not really there yet, right? And so what happens is, is Peter ends up being, uh, the, the tradition is, is he's martyred in Rome. One of the early, uh, like, acts of Peter, kind of these apocalyptic literatures, has him crucified upside down, if you've heard that, right? And the line is, is uh, I cannot die a death the same way that my, my Lord did. I'm not worthy of it. And so the, the Romans are like, okay, we can arrange that. Flip, you know. Okay, and so that's the, that's the legend. Paul also makes his way to Rome. And we think that Paul is beheaded. Almost all the early traditions say he's beheaded somewhere in the mid-60s A.D. during the persecution of Nero. And if you know that story, right, Nero uh, most likely lit his own city on fire. Okay, right, probably about a third of the city burns. And then in order to deflect blame, he blames the Christians. It's probably during that time that both Peter and Paul are martyred. Okay, if you have yet to see it yet, an interesting take on this. Have you seen the movie Paul yet? Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, is Luke in this one. Okay, and it's actually, it's kind of slow, but if it means anything, even though it's slow, my high school kids actually said it was a good one, okay? Um, but it's, it came out like two or three years ago. It's just simply called Paul. If you haven't seen that movie yet, they kind of portray the last years of Paul's life, and he's Luke's trying to minister to him in prison, and it's actually very real. And uh, the kind of the prison guard, the head of the prison guard, has a sick kid. It's kind of a Hollywood invention, but it's trying to, like, set up Luke and Paul. And he goes to Paul, if you pray for my kid, will he be healed? And Paul goes, I don't know. Which is interesting. He's very honest, right? He's like, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to do everything. I don't know. <laughs> it's just kind of a funny little moment. And then what ends up happening is because Luke's a doctor, Luke's the one that actually does it. And he uses medicine. And the kind of the theological implication is, is sometimes God gives us things in our own creation that, you know, that we can use, like medicine. It doesn't have to be a miraculous healing every time. So it's fascinating. But the Paul, the reason I bring that up, and to, to go back to Elaine's, thing, Elaine's question, so when Paul dies and Peter dies in the 60s, 
um, the Roman church is expanding gratefully, greatly, right? And so we even hear, Paul, uh, Paul even says one time, uh, those who are in, in Caesar's household greet you. So it's even made its way to the imperial family, right? And so it's very, it's growing, it's growing, but it's still persecuted, kind of off and on, depending on who the Roman emperor is. Well, the leader of the church, because it's such a big city, is good, you know, it's kind of like the senior pastor of a bunch of churches. For what we would call them in Lutheran Church, Missouri uh, Senate, would be like a district president. Okay, so he's out in Portland. He might have a church, but he also kind of uh, administers and gives counsel to all the churches around in the Northwest District, right? The same sort of thing starts happening in Rome because it's a big city. Peter and Paul are martyred there. Peter, so Peter doesn't really found the like Eastern Orthodox Church at this point. There's no, you know what I'm saying? There's not these distinctions. And so in Rome, this city becomes a big deal. And because everybody goes to Rome and there's over a million people there, et cetera, et cetera, that church gets a certain amount of prestige, right? Because it's just big. Not because people are like, oh, the Pope in Rome is like the you know, vicar of Christ on earth. They don't say stuff like that right away. Okay, It's just because it has a lot of prestige. But it is the claim that when Peter dies there and when Paul dies there, the ministers and the pastors that they appointed there end up becoming the first quote-unquote popes. Right? And the reason that is, is you have to have pastors and leaders after Peter and Paul. Okay, and so they name people like there's a Titus that's named and some others, some very early figures. Clement is another one. There's a Clement of Rome. He's about the 90s AD, and he wrote a letter called First Clement. And then there's kind of a Second Clement, which is more of a sermon. And that's, again, about the 90s AD. In fact, First Clement almost made it into the Bible, and then they said we don't need it because it just quotes Scripture the whole time. We've already got it. Okay, but First Clement and Second Clement are kind of about the 90s. And so these early figures, which we don't know a ton about, are sometimes called the first popes. But they don't have the same authority and title and uh, land and everything else that we associate with the medieval papacy. So is it the roots of the Roman Catholic Church? Well, kind of, yeah, but it's really just the roots of all of Western Christianity. So, I mean, it's not, it's not the medieval Roman Catholic Church. It's just the church. There is a, you know, does that make sense? In the East, what ends up happening is, is yes, Peter's in the East in places. Um, uh, Mark, John Mark, who we just talked about, ends up in Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt. We think that's where he goes as a missionary, and we think he's martyred in Egypt. The legend is that St. Thomas, of course, goes all the way to western India, the St. Thomas Christians, right? And so they spread out into the east, but at the time, there's no really hard division between Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. We really don't see that hard division until about the seven or 800s AD. And the reason that division takes place is partly because of politics, partly just simply because of um, language barriers. Because right now, this is under, even though Christians are persecuted, the empire as a whole is under what people call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So Paul can take a missionary journey and start one place and end up in Crete or end up in Spain or end up in Italy and journey without a problem. Because Romans control everything. It's safe, right? The Roman armies, they own the sea. They call the Mediterranean Mare Nostrum, our lake. Okay, it's our sea. We own it. Okay, <laughs> that's not cocky at all, right? We own the Med. You know. So, but I mean, that, that idea of peace, you can travel all over. So there's kind of a unifying culture. With, even if it was Latin or Greek, everybody spoke Latin or Greek. In the 600s, I don't know if you know this, and there's other things. In the West, there's barbarian invasions and other things. In the East, we have a new religion called Islam which shows up, and when Islam starts to take over, it's kind of hard for the Christians in Alexandria, Egypt, to talk to the Christians in Rome anymore because they're under Islamic rule. They're just trying to survive. Okay, And so if that's the case, then, you're going to start to see some natural divisions culturally. 
So eventually, people in the East only speak Greek, people in the West only speak Latin or a Germanic language, and they can't talk anymore. Okay? The practices start to look a little different. They cross different ways. They might use unleavened bread versus leavened bread. They might have a different date for Easter. They might, you get what I'm saying? All these little practices start to show up. So then when they do start talking again, they're like, what are they doing? <laughs> right? You see, you see what I'm saying? And so even though th there's, a, there's a difference geographically, West and East, there isn't that kind of hard Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, really for hundreds of years still. It takes a lot of factors. Go for it. Yeah, really interesting. So does that mean then that the division that occurred between Paul and Peter didn't really, I mean, it, it didn't come to fruition until six to 700? Or would you say that, that you know, the two, uh, Eastern and Catholicism, are just evolved based on what you just described? Right, yeah. So the Peter and Paul dispute here, they solve it. Okay. That's what this council, that's what this council does. Okay, thanks. Yep, this, it solves it. Um, this, I mean, not... They're still human beings, okay? <laughs> okay, so I mean, they're, I mean, it's not like it's perfect all the time. But this council solves it. No, the, the division between East and West is definitely, it more evolves over hundreds of years. And really, as Lutheran Christians, we need to be honest, that's us too. It's not like there was a Lutheran church in 800 AD, right? That's us too. That's our family history. Until we get to the 1500s or so, this is us. Western Christianity, that's us. We were part of the church Catholic still, right? So, I mean, that's unless you think the church disappeared... For, you know, until Luther shows up. There are people that believe that, by the way. Okay? And my question for that, of course, is Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So where'd it go? Sounds a little Mormon. Well, yeah, actually, in some Protestants on that issue are really close, actually, to the LDS theology that it needs to be restored. There's a restored, uh, restoration idea. Reformation is not restoration. Reformation is a course correction. It's not let's blow up the ship and do it again. Okay? I, show, I told my kids that, right? If you're in a ship and you're two degrees off, you course correct. Now, if you catch, catch, the, if you catch the mistake right away, it's not even that big of a deal. Now, if you're, if you're two degrees off for a couple hundred years, we've got a problem. Right? That's going to be a bit of a course correction. Might have to plug some leaks or whatever. Okay? But there are some Christians that think that the whole ship disappeared. We've got to go back to shore, rebuild the ship, and go back to the beginning and try to sail again. Okay? That's not Reformation. Reformation is, okay, let's patch things up. Let's course correct. Okay? That's Reformation. Revolution or restoration is let's blow up the ship and start all over, okay? And that's a that's not what we've ever said. We are the, the church has never been that way. And that's why Luther Luther's attitude the whole time, as you are well aware, was not let's blow up the ship. It's let's reform from the inside. Let's keep the good stuff and let's trim away the bad stuff. Right? That's I was always the attitude. And so that idea that it disappeared is just bizarre to me. We're gonna add something back there, raising? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I, I, I was reading there. Joshua in the Battle of Jericho and the circumcision confuses me because they pull over and sharpen flints and circumcise everybody. Yeah. And and they rested until they were healed and then they then they won the battle of Jericho. So would you explain to me what the heck's going on here? Yeah, so they weren't being faithful to the covenant is what was going on. And so, so basically, because they were to be, I mean, going all the way back to Abraham, right? They were to be circumcised. But there are numerous passages throughout Scripture where they're not being faithful, even in the sign of the, the sign of the circumcision, which symbolizes their covenant with God. And so, a great example, and it's just a weird passage, is Moses even forgets to circumcise his kids, and Zipporah, his wife, does it, and then throws the foreskins at his feet. I'm not joking. That's actually a story in the old. It's weird. And bizarre in the Old Testament, 
But what that shows you, the reason I bring that up, not because it's just funny to giggle at, it's just bizarre, but, be, but then you have this passage right in Joshua. It shows that the Old Testament people of God, they keep screwing it up over and over, and God keeps saying, I'll take you back, I'll take you back. Or he has Moses or Joshua plead with him on behalf of the people, right? God says, hey, let me go take care of these people. I'll start a new nation with you. And Moses is like, hey, hey. Are you forgetting what you did? People are going to make a mockery of us if this is what happens. And then, you know, of course, that's what God's wanting him to do. God already knows what he's going to do, okay? But he has Moses plead on behalf of the people. So in that passage, the easy answer is they're not being faithful. And they know they're going to lose unless they're faithful. And so, we've got to make ourselves right with God <laughs> before we go into this battle. And so we're going to do these circumcisions. And Joshua is saying, hey, we were not being exactly faithful in the desert, were we? Before we get into the land of Canaan, let's fix that. Does that make sense? Yeah, go for, go for it. That explains the victory. They were so mad about this pain they couldn't went through. <laughs> <laughs> They're fighting mad, literally. They were fighting mad. <laughs> you did what? Stephen, go. Yeah. Yeah. Disciples at that time, or something, because he's in with Gamaliel studying, which is Jerusalem, wasn't it? Yeah, generally, yeah. Um, He is in Tarsus. He grows up in Tarsus, and he comes to Jerusalem. Why didn't he interact with Jesus? The answer is we don't know. My guess is, is he, if you think about the Pharisees, remember, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, right? How often do the Pharisees want to associate with the followers of Jesus? Never. You know what I'm saying? They didn't want to, right? And so my guess is with Paul, at least when he's, he's Pharisee Saul, so to speak, right, is he's like, I'm staying far away. You, you know what I mean? Unless he's, and especially if he's just studying at the time, I want to be as pure and as genuine Israelite as possible. And those people causing trouble over there, the followers of the way, that Nazarene over there, I am staying, as, I'm hands off. And then when he resurrects from the dead, oh, he doesn't believe that yet, and they start creating problems, he's like, all right, I was trying to just avoid you guys, but now I'm going to take you on. That's, at least that's the impression that I would get from that. So he probably knew he was there. And who knows, it would be interesting in, in Paul's psychology, right, to just kind of ask him, have you ever thought that you might have been on the same streets as Jesus and not even known it, you know, <laughs> at the time before he even knew? That's, that's an interesting question, though. But my guess is, is even if he's in Jerusalem, he's, I'm going to stay far away from these guys because I want to be as zealous and as pure as possible, as authentically Jewish as possible. Is that kind of, that's at least my take on that. So you can ask Pastor. That's a great question to ask Pastor maybe what he thinks. All right, um... So anyways, he returns, so I want to get back to this, okay? So he returns to Antioch, bringing Barnabas' nephew, John Mark. Okay, so then he goes to his first missionary journey, and that we see in Acts 13. Okay, so go ahead and flip back, Acts 13. All right, see, I'm doing better than Pastor did. <laughs> A little bit. But no, we'll, we'll move now, because this is, this is kind of all in the text. So this is kind of, I just wanted to make those asides. And you guys are asking good questions, so I want to answer those. Okay, so Acts 13, 2 through 1428 we're not going to read the whole passage but we're going to see this first missionary journey and it does say uh, antioch's a diverse congregation because if you look at the beginning of chapter 13 you see barnabas and syria and, and simeon who is called niger okay um lucius of Cyrene. in other words we have it's multicultural okay so i mean they're different skin tones right you see, see the implication here they're coming from different areas a member of the court of herod the tetrarch and saul 
Okay, and then look at this. While they were worshiping, the Lord fasted, the, I mean, and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being, went out, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Look at that name. See the name? Sergius Paulus. It is perhaps, we, we're not sure, the origin of Paul's name. Because this guy's like a wise ruler, and he's kind of a Gentile, and it's possible that Paul gets this name. However, it's also possible that Paul was always his Greek or Roman name, and he just didn't use it much because the first part of his ministry in Acts, he's mostly dealing with Hebrews, right, with Jews. And so he's going to use his Saul name when he's with his Jews because that's a very, you know, it goes back to the first king of Israel, right? So it's a very Jewish among Jews name. But when he's dealing with Greeks, as long as he's on the island of Cyprus, it's a, right, he's on a Greek island. So his name's probably Paul. By the way, Paul means like little or small. There might be symbolism there too, right? So Paul's named after the first king of Israel. And now I'm just a little kind of a humility thing, right? I'm not a king. I'm just a little guy, okay? So I'm going to keep going on and we'll, we'll end with this on Cyprus, okay? Uh, Gentile congregation. Then we have a Jewish so uh, sorcerer, Illumus the magician. And what ends up happening, uh, look at what Paul says. Notice he's called Paul here too, right? Look at how it changes, right? But no, Verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, this is immediately after we get the name of that guy. You see that? Interesting, okay? Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to be led, led him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So then he's going to go to Pisidian, Antioch, and then Iconium. So if you look at your map, and I'll tell Pastor where we are here in a second because the bell just rang. But if you look at this, Pisidia, if you have your map in front of you, I apologize if you don't. If you look, so if you tra trace that up, so Antioch where he's sent is in Syria, so Syrian Antioch. Then you see he goes through Cilicia, he goes past Tarsus, his hometown, okay? Then he's in Derby, and then he goes to Iconium, Pisidian Antioch. Do you see those cities right there in western Turkey? These are Greek-speaking cities. This whole area was Greek, colonized by Greeks. They spoke the Greek language. It was Hellenized by Alexander the Great, so they had Greek gods. This is a very, very Greek area, so it's probably not by accident that he uses his name Paulos in Greek. That's probably not an accident. Paulos or Paulus, Paul, in Greek and Latin. It's not because he's talking to Greeks and Romans. So, implication before we go, have you heard the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? Oh, yes. he, that, that actually, I think, is what's going on here. Is he's, Because he's in a Greek area, he's using his Greek name to do as the Greeks do, so it's not a barrier. Right? I mean, if we, go to, if we went to Central Africa and tried to have to pronounce names in Swahili, we'd probably be in trouble, right? We'd probably have to take one of their names, or if they came here, they'd probably take one of our names, right? That's just kind of how it works. It's to try to eliminate barriers for communication. And we think Paul, both symbolically, by calling himself little, but also by taking this Greek name, is able to reach people that he wasn't going to reach before. And we also know later on, we'll get to that, and Pastor Will, or I will, whoever's teaching at the time, um, Paul's a world-class philosopher, and he knows Greek authors, and so he's knocking down those cultural barriers so that he can preach the gospel. So it's a fascinating passage. 
All right, comments, questions before we close? Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Saul was a big guy. Yeah. Saul's a big Yeah, maybe that's why, because Saul was big and so Paul is little. Yeah, yeah, there's symbolism there. So, All right, let's say the blessing on ourselves. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. Hey everyone, just a quick announcement that we have the workshop on spiritual gifts happening in early November, November 8th and 9th. You can still sign up. There is still space available and you can do so on our website, glc.gracepocatello.org.